had to have a conversation with my parents and tell them, hey, I need to go work for this guy named George Lucas, you know, on this Star Wars movie. Oh, my mom, my dad were like, wait, what? Hello and welcome to the Creative Society Animation Podcast. I'm Michael Wakelam. Apologies, we've missed a few weeks here in between episodes, but, uh, well, I say we, but uh, I've missed a few weeks. I won't blame that on Eric. I meant to get this episode out a couple of weeks back, but work was piling up, and also I had a quick trip out to the Canary Islands to check out the Animeo Festival and the animation industry in general there, um, which, by the way, is growing and super interesting. And the beaches are really cool too. I also met some great people there, and uh, perhaps a guest or two coming up on the podcast. And I'm super excited about the films coming up over the next couple of months. We have Sony's Across the Spider-Verse next, of course, in just a couple of weeks, followed by Ruby Gilmore, Teenage Kraken from DreamWorks, and Elemental from Pixar. And we've also got some great guests coming up over the summer too, so stay tuned for them. Today, though, we have Gary Lee, a layout, previs, and cinematography guru who was just so good to chat to. In fact, I was really impressed by Gary and surprised in ways that I didn't expect. He's so passionate about telling stories and has some really cool stories within his own career. As you'll hear, Gary was born in Taiwan and moved to the US as a teenager, where he continued drawing and started dabbling in animation, doing a short in high school that eventually landed him a job on one of the biggest film franchises of all time. We get into that backstory, his short films, and his latest film, The Magician's Elephant, which you can find on Netflix, and we chat about where previews is going, how that intertwines with digital cinematography and Unreal Engine and all that great stuff. Gary was super generous with his time and really wanted to share as much as he could with the community uh, and the audience, which I really appreciated. So this is a bit of a longer one. Before we get into that, though, if you enjoy the show, feel free to let us know. It's been great that many of you have, and it's always great to hear what you enjoy. And also, please share it with anyone you can. And if you can like, reshare, comment, or rate wherever you get your podcasts, that'd be great. One big thing you can do for us is to follow us in your favorite podcast app. We'd appreciate that. Without further ado, let's jump into that chat with Gary Lee. Welcome, Gary. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm really interested to chat, uh, break down your career and, and what you do, how you do it, and you know the films you've, you've done it on. Um, so obviously you're the, you're the cinematographer on The Magician's Elephant, a recent Netflix feature. Uh, and I guess I've wanted to chat with a cinematographer in animation for some time. And, and my questions would all be around how that role in animation works uh, with and interacts with previews and layout and the story department, um, which is obviously going to be different for every studio and every film to some extent. But when I look closer at your career, that is your background. It's previews and, and layout. And so perfect person to, to have this chat with. Great. So I, I know that uh, our, uh, my friend Eric, who's producer on this podcast, has worked with you at DreamWorks, um, where you worked on, on films like Monsters vs. Aliens, uh, which I think was super, super fun, and, and a couple of Kung, Kung Fu Panda films. Uh, and you've crisscrossed from animation to, to live action and, and back and, uh, and dabbled in directing. So I want to get into that as well. You've done a little bit of homework. Well, let's, let's rewind all the way back, Gary. Let's go all the way back and hit rewind and see how it all started for you. So you, were, so you were born in Taiwan, is that right? That's right. I was born in Taiwan. I came to the States when I was 13 years old. Um, I didn't speak English at the time. So I really, even when I was in Taiwan, I kind of dabbed, you know, was into reading a lot of comic books and 
I remember growing up that my dad was not super excited about the idea of me like burying myself in comic books. It's like, you know, the there's a little bit of that Asian mentality of, you know, academic and, you know, the comic book is too much of a leisure um of a thing. Although he is a huge reason why I I, I enjoy cinema because um we used to go down to you know video store to like he would just kind of allow me and my sister pick any and any movies we want to watch and we will actually do you know over the weekend see who can stay up the longest to like go through the movies that we rent <laughs> um anyway that was a little bit of that memory but since i came to the states i think my parents kind of realized that the comic book was kind of like the comfort zone where i was and kind of the floodgate just was open. I was kind of, there was, I'm, I wasn't getting any, any lips about diving into that world. So I kind of, you know, reading a ton of comic books, trying to get my bearings in this new world and, you know, making friends and, and all of, all of which, you know, some may ask, some may think that is like a hard transition, but when I think back, it was, it was a very, um, it was an incredible experience in like kind of a self growth, you know, to like throw yourself into a completely different environment and able to kind of communicate through drawings or through, you know, body language with friends. And, and just as a kid, you're at an environment for one or two years and you pick up the language and, and that becomes a new normal. Um, so during that time, I was doing a lot of comic reading. I, I, you know, I would also do, I started to draw my own comic book as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Growing up, is drawings always been something I enjoyed doing a great deal. And in Taiwan, I would kind of represent our elementary school to do competitions with other other elementary school in Taipei, sort of things. So that's kind of a domain that that I felt comfortable and I go to. Yeah, and my mom came with us. And she ended up, she started working at this computer store as an accountant. And through that computer store, that's when I got my first PC machine where someone loaded a bunch of 3D animation softwares on it uh, <laughs> you know, to like me, who's like 14, you know, 14, 15. And that was also the time that Toy Story came out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I, 13 was a pivotal moment in my life, not just the whole transition from a country to another. It was also when Jurassic Park came out. Yeah. Jurassic Park really kind of changed the way I saw cinema. I was like, I couldn't believe this happened. I couldn't believe I saw a dinosaur on the screen. And I think slowly through all those small, you know, inputs that, I'm, I became really fascinated with motion graphics, motion art, motion animation. So I started animating in, you know, 3D Studio Max at the time. It was a pirated version of it, you know, when I was in high school. And eventually at the, towards the end of high school, I directed a, I made a animated short film. And that was kind and that was the very beginning of, of um, my journey into animation. That was for your high school yearbook? 
yeah, I, I made this small animation for fun. It was a pure passion project. I would kind of sleep next to my computer desk while, you know, it runs, it renders. And yeah, then just, just in case it crashed and you needed to hit render again. Yeah. That's right. You're the animator, you're the render watcher, you're the modeler, you're everything. I've been there. I've been there sleeping under the desk, hoping it doesn't crash. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, but it was like, it was exciting until, you know, later in career, you're like, I'm not going to sit there and wait for renders. Anymore. <laughs> you know? uh, so then you enrolled at uh, the art center college of design. Is that right? Um, that's, uh, I think one of our, one of our previous guests, Ken Billenberg, who you probably know from DreamWorks. He's now the chair of entertainment design there. Oh, that's, is that right? Yeah, that's awesome. it is. Yeah. I was heavily into illustration still, even though I've done this animated short film. But when I was applying for Arts Center Pasadena at the time, they didn't have an animation program. So it was just illustration or entertainment. And entertainment was just barely starting out, but entertainment was really focused for concept design, you know, kind of still 2D art. So I kind of got my foot in the door as an illustration major, started doing a lot of drawings, painting, but I would always go and sit in on the two animation, like a few 3D animation classes that they, that they made available for the senior students. Um, and that was the area that I was the most fascinated. So, but I couldn't take those classes. So I had to kind of go and just sit in and audit them. Yeah, that's right. And that's, it is over there where I met a lot of kind of graduating students and and they all you know kind of took me under their wings and you know i would ask them a million questions and so that kind of i almost feel like the first two semesters of my life at our center i pretty much was there all the time just at the computer labs and um trying to you know talk my way into using all the equipments and the softwares and you know, how, how do I do this? How do I do that? <clears throat> then, um, as, as all my friends were graduating, our teacher had a relationship with someone at Lucasfilm, um, that was looking for animatic artists for Star Wars episode two and animatic, uh, they had just Phantom Menace heavily utilized this animatic tool, previous yeah. animatic, that was kind of the very early days of of that industry and i remember looking at all my students all my friends just being very envious going wow they're going to be graduating and they're going to be applying you know they might be working at lucasfilm there's like i still have years ahead of me before finishing school and it's like am i going to be a painter like what is my path and i think one night uh it was after they've applied i i was like why don't i just apply with them I would just take my the high school thing I did, and that was just a year ago from when I was at Art Center. So I did. I just applied with into Lucasfilm, and and uh, within a week they were like, "Hey, do you want to come and come and work?" And 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 I had to uh, had a conversation with my parents and tell them, "Hey, I'm I, I, I'd like to go work with this for this guy named George Lucas." you know, on this Star Wars movie. And my dad, <laughs> oh, my mom, my dad were like, wait, why are you going to take school off to do this? 
well, I guess fine. You can go and do this one job, work on this one film. When you're done with that, come back to school. Anyway, I, you know, that was like, I was 19, drove up to San Francisco, Marin County, and then had joined the um, Star Wars Episode Two animatic team under um, David Dozoritz and Daniel Gregoire, who were the supervisors. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember, I don't know, I think maybe a behind-the-scenes clip years ago when that first came out, and just seeing, um, you know, obviously those prequels were the first major productions to really uh, utilise previews in, in such a heavy way. But I remember also seeing a, a couple of other young people, you know, maybe just out of high school, who got into... Um, to do previews, and I don't know if you were one of those, but it was a clip I saw many, many years ago, and um, so it was interesting to see these people, these these young kids who are just grasping this software and learning how to use it really, really fast. You know, being able to get in and help on such a large production, you know, so quickly, it kind of reminds me of you know seeing young kids, um, uh, even my son, just with with Blender and being able to get to know their way around that so fast. Um, it's uh, it's really interesting. So tell me about that experience on on uh, Attack of the Clones. Oh, it was amazing because there's always been a part of me that felt that I didn't really belong in certain groups, and artistically, I mean, you know, am I illustrator? You know, a bunch of my friends at Art Center wanted to get into um, fine art or traditional illustration or concept illustration, and I always was kind of fascinated by by at that point beginning to be fascinated about storytelling cinema you know motion art visual storytelling specifically really at lucasfilm i think they had they were really smart in just kind of casting a net around different parts of the country to try to find people who are you know into the cutting edge technology who loves to open up a 3D software and do different things with it and really try to tell a story with a passion. So none of the recruits were kind of based on, oh, you graduated from this school with this degree, but it's more like, what have you done? And mm -hmm. which is which really speaks to this industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. So I was friends with a lot of very young kids that were, you know, um, from different parts of the country that had just done one animation class or um, I've done, you know, a group short film. And it was also interesting time in which it became much more apparent right after Lucasfilm later on when I joined DreamWorks Animation is when witnessing the entire animation industry also shifting from 2D to 3D. Mm. And my peers will be, you know, traditional 2D layout artists much, much older than me that had to pick up a 3D software from scratch. It was almost like a like a disruption in the kind of the workforce due to the demand of and the desire of seeing more 3D animated you know projects. Uh, that's when you have your Toy Story, you have your Ants, you have your A Bug's Life, and also just like the truly the beginning of this huge digitalized. Uh, digital filmmaking that 
you know, George Lucas, Pixar, all these companies were spearheading. So part of me, sometimes when people ask me about my start and I tell them I started at 19, you know, was, you know, working on Star Wars as, as my first job, a lot of that it was kind of the right place, the right time situation. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the same thing as today. Maybe suddenly you have a very young kid who just happens to know how to code very well at a tech company that gets hired. And, and I felt very much like that was, that was, that was what happened. That was the reason why I was there. I guess it was also, you know, a great place to learn about filmmaking, um, you know, working with, with uh, George Lucas and team. What a great, what a great film school, really. If you're not at school, what, that would probably be the next best place to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, much of the time looking back, I would say my experience at Lucasfilm was the best technical school because that was the that was the time and the place where the kind of the new age of filmmaking formula, you know, uh, you know, methods really got created. And all my peers that were in that group at the main house at the third floor of Skywalker Ranch all end up becoming previous giants in our industry today you have you know my friend uh chris Edwards started uh and then and then there's a group of them started the third floor which is the biggest previous company perhaps one of the biggest previous company today that had done most of the marvel films uh daniel gregoire bradley alexander my dear friends that have started at you know halo entertainment that basically serves tremendous amount of films from Transformers, Aquaman, Life of Pi, which is a project I end up participating in. Yeah. And it was just, I felt very, very lucky because now I look around and all these people are, you know, heads of companies that are kind of spearheading where previous goes next. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for all of that. Yeah, that's an incredible start. Um, so, you know, that amazing start in live action in, well, I guess you kind of call the Star Wars films hybrid, not necessarily a straight live action, but, um, you know, you head over to DreamWorks and you're working on films like Over the Hedge, Monsters vs. Aliens and the Kung Fu Panda films. And, um, you know, I guess live action previews and animation layout are very similar. And so what was that transition like for you? And, and what, what made you want to take that leap over to animation? I think in the span of the past 20 years of doing this, what I do is been called in so many ways. <laughs> you have previs, you have animatics, you have layout in animation domain. And all of them kind of have a lot of similarities. Is Even for the longest time with my own parents, they think I'm an animator, you know, that's, that's, I, I do animation, I'm an animator. And previous is like this very, this a weird term that, that I always find myself having to explain. And when I, at the end of the explanation, I can, you know, still look at a person walking away, looking very confused. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think the, now I, I I'm 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 hard I'm really pleased to see that the industry is looking at previous more like digital cinematography, um, or like ex, you know like 
we're and we're doing animated storyboards and we're kind of um we're shooting the film and we're kind of the person that's in charge of the camera and i think from that point on now when i talk when like at this very moment i'm at sony um picture animation as head of cinematography and i think going forward even something as little as changing the terminology of it is going to allow people to understand it so much quicker and better. Yeah, yeah definitely. You know? I, I guess because, you know, in the earlier days of CG animation, cinematographers, I guess there wasn't really cinematographers necessarily, you know, in, in that in that terminology. But also I, the people who were doing layout and previews had less input into lighting because you had the lighting designers and, the, and you know. That's right. Um, and so the input from the DP was more to do with layout and if the DP role was there at all, you know. Uh, and often, um, you know, those early films were really quite bright as well, you know, so the, the, the lighting wasn't, you know, incredibly cinematic. And, I mean, I think I heard someone talk about this, uh, uh, like, you know, you you've paid to model every texture and every detail in that environment. So we should see them. Right. You know? Um, and then I think there was a point where, you know, Pixar first, and I think DreamWorks, they brought in consultants like Roger Deakins, um, who started to help change that thinking, um, in regards to, you know, the input of cinematography and animation. And so, yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to talk about, Obviously, you, you, your your time uh, on this latest film, but uh, and how that compares to those earlier films. So, when you were in the, on those those DreamWorks films, um, was that that was more layout and previews, um, and there wasn't yes. necess- not wasn't necessarily a, a cinematographer per se as in title on those films. No, no, no. Uh, I think DreamWorks. Again, animation studios do have this tradition of coming from calling that department layout. Mm. Traditionally, 2D layout artists really lay out the shots, and then eventually that becomes the kind of the foundation for when animation animators start drawing on top of it, or they start doing, you know, rather they figure out the perspective and the scope of the of the back background. The, <clears throat> it's really when digital cinematography kind of like previous uh, having the ability to navigate with the kind of a digital camera in 3D space, that suddenly we are talking about spatial relationships. Suddenly we're talking about lenses. We're talking about different, um, we're talking about, you know, replicating real life uh, relationships between you know, the character in, in that environment. For the longest time, animation do split up camera and lighting yeah. because they're two completely different processes. You have your camera, you, we're kind of people that takes a digital camera and then almost taking these video game-like uh, chess pieces of characters and then put them in this, you know, uh, mock-up environment and try to stage block a scene, create different shots, create footage for editorial to try to, you know, cut together a a visual narrative um, expression. Then once that's all done, like 
way down the pipe, that's when lighting starts. So typically the animation process, staging that camera and when the lighting starts are happening in almost two different timelines. And they also are executed through a lot of times the lighting choices are coming from the production designers that are doing the the concept concept arts, color keys and all that. And so I think for a company, you know, probably the most open-minded in the sense of like giving director photography title to, uh, to people like us, which is Disney, Pixar, they've actually split up those titles into two different jobs. So it's like director photography, camera, director photography, lighting. It's like two people that are taking up the traditional sense of like DP title in a live action setting. Because live action, a DP like Roger Deakins goes on set and he would, you know, he would operate a camera, find the shots, and he would also be lighting simultaneously. And really, yeah. the two things are coming together at one. Uh, in animation, there are two different processes. Until, I, no, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say, and that would partly be due to technology, because earlier on, we couldn't visualize things very fast. You know, it was a 24-hour render process to get a frame out the other side. So you couldn't make those decisions, you know, on the spot necessarily. It would have been very time-consuming. Um, and that would be interesting to see. I mean, obviously, it is changing with faster render times and faster preview times and what you're seeing uh, what you're seeing on the screen in front of you. But it'll probably change a, a lot more even with, you know, Unreal pipelines and, um, you know, faster render times. You hit it now in the head. That's, that's exactly where everything's going right now is to start adopting a real-time game engine uh, platforms in which we get real physical lighting um, in real time that, that, you know, on this particular project at um, spot, uh, Sony picture animation we're developing a new pipeline that is very much gonna be working with light earlier on um to have that conversation to be able to see to to actually have the sun be a certain direction and it actually shines into the room it bounces all the lights all physical all in like reacting due to actual physics and, and reality and we're really at it at a point that is truly exciting for for previous i think i think we're going into um a place where the the state the the cinematography and the lighting is 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 going to be marrying much much more closely going forward yeah and much you know reflecting traditional filmmaking a, a lot more um especially you know when i've spoken to people at sony and, and even christine belson you know they're really a a director-led you know, uh, studio. And so in a traditional right. film, the director and the DP are, you know, stuck together at their hip, you know, exactly. they are, they work together so closely. And, you know, those choices in regards to lighting are, are so story, they should be so story led. Uh, and so they should be really, you know, that, that team of director and, and DP should be making those decisions. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And and also, cinematography is such a big part of the visual storytelling process. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, we're making films, we're making 
a visual medium that I remember a producer I worked with um, before that had always talked about how we're in the show me business, not a tell me business. You know, if if I want to um, script at the end of the day, it has to be translated as a visual format for people to enjoy on the screen. And and we, we should always, you know, start conversing in that uh, sandbox as, as quickly as we can, you know, after the script. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's why I, that's one of the reasons I love uh, listening to Roger Deacon's podcast. I don't know if you've heard that, but uh, it's, oh, it's, it's amazing. An, it's an incredible podcast. Yeah. Um, he was great. a he's he he was a consultant on Vivo, a project that you know I I, oh, part- really? I, I yeah. had a chance to participate a yeah. few years back with the leadership of Young Duck. No, Roger is has has made tremendous contribution to the animation world i would say on a cinematic yeah. level yeah, yeah from his you know involvement how you know consulting on wally to how to train your dragon and, and all yeah, these films, yeah and yeah. having a very distinctive different look to the prior animated projects yeah that makes sense on vivo i mean i spoke to carlos Zaragoza and joe Mosier on the podcast um about vivo because i just really love that film and i think it's a um uh, underrated and underseen film you know it's just because, because it, it yes. came out you know during the pandemic and kind of disappeared in netflix and, and people didn't really get to see it um but if you're listening and want to see a great film uh vivo is a really great musical and it's a lin-manuel miranda um musical i mean what's not to like yeah it really kind of felt like it went under the radar a little bit but it's it's a, it's a really solid piece for sure i so much heart to it. The music's great. Yeah, it's a little bit unfortunate. Uh, unfortunate that, that I feel like some people had, you know, it did, it wasn't as widely publicized as the other Lemonwell film, which is uh, Encanto. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just happens to come out in the same year, and I don't know if if that has something to do with it. Well, I think it was also just you know unfortunate it was just due to the pandemic as well because sony films traditionally go straight to theaters and they don't go to a streaming service so you know take the pandemic away and it definitely would have had a theatrical release and and all the theatrical release marketing that goes along with that um but yeah unfortunately it got got packaged and and um uh sent to a streamer i hope through this particular conversation more people would then go look for vivo right now and yeah you know, definitely i i always encourage people to watch it because it's such a uh, and great design great character design great concept design you know production design um i love some of those choices and actually the the podcast i did with joe um on character design um i've had such uh, the the feedback we've had on that episode was that people send it you know i've had executives send it to their character designers and um, right to listen to it's like an audio masterclass from from joe he's just so his thinking is 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 really great yeah i've had a few uh interactions with him on vivo and i don't know him that well but he is kind of a walking personification of that style of the designs that he's you know he's putting out to the world and i love that about him i, I like i guess i can see him from you know, a block away and be like, 
wow, he's like a character in our film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is. He's always working um, hard as well. Like whenever I uh, email with him, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm working nights on some other project at the moment, you know. Um, so, yeah, sure. Sure. he's working hard. Um, so I, I'm interested to uh, talk about how all of these influences, you know, you've, you've kind of you're crisscrossed from, you know, live action to animation. Then you went back to live action, um, you know, working on Life of Pi, Star Trek, Aquaman, all of those films. Uh, on, on previews, but you also within that you you found time to direct two shorts of your own. Um, so how did that how did that come about? And were they passion projects that you took time off for, or did you uh, make them in your spare time? I think ever since experience at Lucasfilm, I've found that I wanted to be in this business because because of the passion of telling stories. Mm. And as you start collect all these tool sets and skill sets, it's like, oh, I want to apply them into stories that is meaningful, you know, to myself. And 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 to be honest, you also, a lot a lot of it starts from a very innocent place and naive place of thinking, hey, I can just do this short film. So like <laughs> two months. Uh. I right? laugh because it, it's so it's so familiar that that thinking is so familiar to me. <laughs> oh my god, for sure. And so at DreamWorks, you know, I kind of just I, I did a previs for this short film called Hector Corp. It's about a, a stress reliever penguin that has like a it's like a mascot of a comp, of a corporation that at the, you know at at night it comes alive and it start taking people out is almost like the way of like firing people of that company right <laughs> and it's like a satire dark comedy sort of thing and and it was like yeah or just spend it have a weekend or have i have some money save up we'll do some product we'll, we'll, we'll do some you know uh actual we rented a soundstage in hollywood to shoot you know a few sets and the rest is going to be say extension with blue screen, with matte painting, from the skill set I learned from Lucasfilm, and then the, the little penguins will just I'll just animate myself, you know, and we'll do like it turned out to be a very like I spent years on this project. <laughs> like I would I would get off work, go home, have dinner, turn on my computer, and just worked out like one every day. And that goes that loop like repeats, repeats for a very long time, to a point that you know I don't think it's entirely healthy uh, for for someone who is in his like early twenties. I was like, my friends would be like, "Hey, what are you doing this weekend? Are you still are you still doing that thing? Are you still working on that project?" And it's a huge, huge learning experience. Like to for me to take away from that project is you have to. <clears throat> You definitely have to plan for the whole thing. You can't just plan for uh, thinking that oh, just because I know how to do this, I will be the person that's in charge of comp completing it. Because, and I think it's it's because being a little bit young, you're a little bit naive. You haven't you know had that much experience in like going through so many different projects. In hindsight, I think at that age, if I were to understood the amount of work that has to go into it i would have definitely planned it differently or be a little bit smarter about it do i regret any of um any of those 
process issues. Not at all, because it all becomes um, knowledge. Who you are, and yeah, yeah, and and it's interesting because it is. <clears throat> Uh, because I've been through a very similar experience, you know, it's uh, it, it is unhealthy in some ways in the time, you know, in that moment, uh, especially you know with family or you know if you've got um, you know dependence for anything, uh, you know, it can be unhealthy. But actually, in the long run, it can, you know, it's obviously very healthy for your career and your creativity. Um, but it's interesting talking with so many people on on the podcast. There, there's often a moment in someone's career where they've done something like that. You know, they've, they've had this period of, of sacrifice, I guess, of time where that has just elevated them to a whole other level in their career, you know, and, and propelled them forward, um, you know, with knowledge, with tools, with, you know, uh, you know, success, whatever. But, you know, th- there is usually um, a period of time, you know, of sacrifice, a project, you know, an endeavor that that forces them to move forward. Uh, but what's interesting with you is that then you did it again, like five years later. So, so, <laughs> so, yeah, so how, how, how did that differ the second time? Yeah. So Hector Corp ended up, you know, when I was finished with it, my roommate at the time was Young Doug, who was the head of cinematography on Vivo. He was like, Gary, you actually did this. Like you finished it. Cause, cause it was something that I talked to him about uh, orientation at DreamWorks. And it was like years later, I finished the project. I have to, I must say that whole project, you know, when you spend a few months on something versus a few years on something, you're like, at the beginning, sitting out to do Hector, I'm like, this is just a personal endeavor. I want to do it. And then I'll watch it with some close friends and we'll just put it on the shelf. I'll be very happy about it. At the end of a few years, you're like, I, I want to send this out to film festivals. There's like as many people has to see this as possible. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. It's like your, your years of your life has been pouring to this thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and thankfully the film festivals took it. And then I was able to, you know, win some awards with it on some smaller genre film festivals. It was also interesting at that time that, there wasn't just there was just not a lot of people doing any short films with any animation um elements in it or visual effects elements in it mm. so for the experience of hector most of the um a lot of the film festivals didn't actually know how to categorize this film is it a live action film is it an animated film it ended up being find its voice more in genre film festivals and what happens after that, uh, yes, I did it again. And this time was, um, I had joined Ang Lee on Life of Pi, where uh, that project was a gift on its own. I was you know, in New York with him and eventually went to Taiwan, India. And I was also from Taiwan where my family are and my entire career, I've never imagined myself working in Taiwan on a Hollywood film. And the last time they ever shot a Hollywood film in Taiwan was 50 years prior Life of Pi. Mm. So to be able to get on that project, to be in Taiwan, to kind of reconnect with that land, I was, I, I felt just very, very lucky to, to, to be part of that. But through Aang, uh, I was very lucky to end up becoming friends with him 
that in a way that he's always encouraging in, you know, you got to keep shooting, you got to keep shooting. So what came of Aiden, which is the, my second short film, was right at the heel of Life of Pi, kind of, again, go and shoot this. Okay, so let's talk about Aiden then. You know, that's uh, super impressive, Gary. I just, I, I loved it. And by the way, thanks so much for sharing that that link with me and being able to watch that whole film and i'll put a link to the trailer in the show notes for that but also let us know when you post the whole film and i'll share it um you mentioned earlier when we were chatting about um being able to use previs to get some key people onto that project um can you talk about that a little bit more yeah for aiden it was um it was the second short film kind of official short film and it's one that you know, after having done Hector a few years earlier, I was like, I'm not going to do this half-assed job in terms of just thinking that because I have the knowledge of doing visual effects, animation, compositing, just going to go on a weekend, you know, shoot with my roommate and spend years, you know, doing posts. So it was, it became kind of like, how do I assemble an actual team, a professional team? that can be partners on this project and that can be planned in a way that uh will be able to you know be delivered and done with the quality and also um with certain timeline in mind and and also that was during the time that after getting you know just had just finished life of high and seeing how ang works that's so much of your film is about the team that is behind it. You know, like the team is such a group effort. Uh, making a feature, uh, a film is such a group effort. I remember someone had mentioned that making film is like painting with the most expensive brush. And and I really believe that. So it's like, okay, so it's not just about me anymore. It's about getting a team together and what is the best way to approach this different talent. And also on budgetary level, this is Aiden was an ambitious sci-fi um, adventure project that's meant to be bigger than the short film itself. Uh, it's always meant to be a pitch into a feature. So to be able to achieve it, execute it with a shoestring budget, and shoestring budget essentially is the savings, part of the savings I had from working on Life of Pi going into the project. Uh, I decided to you know utilize the skill set of doing previs so we actually pre i pre-visualized the entire short film that came out to be about 15 minutes long and i remember at the time my producer luke Watson, i was like i'm so sick of doing previs i just finished you know working on previs for this you know big project for the past two years on this short film can i just not do previs and he was like, no, Gary, you have to do it because that's the only way to for us to see what is it that's in your mind. But literally, you know, I took time off just on my computer, uh, did the entire previous 15 minutes, shot by shot, all of it. And what I didn't realize was how valuable and how beneficial that previous was. Because then I was taking that to me, editor, um i was friends with this editor marian brandon who was the editor of us uh, you know jj abrams editor on star trek force awakens 
And I was like, do you know anyone who, you know, is a good editor? Like, obviously, she's way over, you know, um, above my pay grade in terms of, you know, getting on project. And she was like, hey, you know, why don't you show this to my assistant, uh, Julian Smirk? I show it to him the previous. He was like, okay, I'm on board, right? So we have this conversation. And also with the same previous, got Jack Wall, the composer who did Call of Duty, some of the biggest video game franchises. And he was able to kind of see the vision through that as well. Our sound designer, Jamie Scott, came on. He's actually someone who I've had longer history with. Uh, he did all the sound and music for Hector. And Jamie had, um, you know, he's basically one of those Swiss army knife type of sound uh, designer. Mm. He, and in fact, he just finished a um, Mario film recently. And mm. so, you know, he's he swims in making some of the best sound effects driven projects that I know. And with this kind of a Sunday, we're just kind of assembling this team together to be like, okay, we're going to make Aiden. The final piece was actually the actor, um, Kevin Alejandro, who at the time he was on True Blood, which was a very popular show. Yeah. And, and it was one of the things that, you know, I have very little record to, to show in, as far as directing. And he saw the uh, vision through the previous, you know, the 15 minute animation. And it's the first time I'm dealing with a real actor who has a team, who has management, has agencies. And all the communication was kind of through, you know, producer, through casting director and getting these glimpses of like his team doesn't really want him to be doing this it's a short film like where is it going like why is what and and we literally had a backup actor uh in case if kevin doesn't show up you know on the on the day of the <laughs> shoot and i swear like the night before the shoot i still wasn't sure if we have kevin suddenly i got this door knock and it was him. He was like, "Hey, let's rehearse," and I was I was so blown away by just how gracious and kind, and how he really just wanted to be the part of this project. And 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 by no means I was, you know, we were able to give him what big studios was able to, you know, provide for him. So I'm 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 very very grateful for um for being able to collaborate with him, but kind of uh, continue on that journey. Aiden end up being completed still we're still short you know even after all that planning still didn't have enough money to finish mm. visual effects and it was my first experience of actually having to go out there find look for money to um finish the project and i happened to be in taiwan with my family on kind of my yearly taiwan visit and we were able to meet uh, one of my father's friend who is kind of a tech, uh, you know, pretty successful in tech, but essentially he had this huge project, you know, in Asia that he's building a big town that he was like, hey, why don't you just help me with your animation skill, help me pre-visualize this city that I'm building, you know, in, in Asia. 
and I was like, well, I mean, you know, I really appreciate the offer, but I'm in film. I still have this project I'm trying to finish. So he's like, why don't, why don't I give you a team to do this? And you can use that team to finish whatever you need to finish. Mm. So that ended up being the team that helped me finish the visual effects for Hayden. So I was in Taiwan for one year in, in completing that project. Wow. So that was the kind of the journey of getting the Aiden short film done. Then it becomes the film festival circuit. And, and I think, you know, fortunately it was pretty well received. We were able to, you know, get 10 awards. And from that point on, it was, you know, trying to get it into a feature film format. And, and that was, that was at 2015, 2016-ish. And pretty quickly, Aiden was going to be a kind of a U.S.-China co-production project that, you know, with me, an Asian, um, you know, filmmaker in Hollywood, and also during that time with different projects like Pacific Rim or The Great Wall, or like mm. there was a lot of collaboration between the East and the West. Yeah. There was a lot of momentum behind that. And ultimately, the geopolitical tension have affected the outcome of it. And it's not just to my project Aiden, but also quite a bit of other projects as well. So that was unfortunate in terms of its kind of feature film path. But at the end of the day, it's still a project that eventually we're going to take out, find, find a right home for it. But it's a huge, huge learning experience through all of that. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, as you know, it was really a, a great concept and re felt really fresh. But I wanted to just go back to the um, the previous that you did for that. And so, did you do temp voices for for all of the, the previews as well? Um, uh, did you? So, how far did you take the the previews? Um, you know, in in sound design and uh, and that type of thing as well. I had all this. I was taking, uh, you know, movie soundtracks to lay it down mm -hmm. to, in helping the tone of 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 the of the uh, short film, ex you know, narrative watching experience. But all of the dialogues were actually done just with subtitles. Okay, there was no no audio recording, um, and so much of it is just I, I did just enough to convey the idea, the shot structure how visually we're telling this this film yeah uh this journey but it is not a you know ultimately at the end of the day that previous was not the final product yeah and, and, that, and that was my other question i guess you know you'd been doing previews for all of these years for other directors and and how to visualize what their vision was and and you know ultimately you know that that's an idea of how you're going to structure that that film or that sequence or that shot um but then things do change along the way so your own previews how much did that inform your own decisions when you were then directing um the short how much did things change oh my god i think i think the the strength and the um the benefit of knowing how to do previews is we can very quickly place little characters you know kind of like these video game figures in digital environments and start placing camera trying to work out the blocking try to work out different ways of shooting it in a lot of ways even my on my own previous i'm shooting coverage and taking it to premiere and trying to edit into 
into, you know, and I feel like editing a piece editing also is a storytelling on its own. You know, like mm. there's they say you write a film, you shoot a film, and you edit a film. You have three different films. Um I'm a I'm a true believer of that. And I think that it's easy to shoot the film you want in previous. <laughs> But it's hard to eventually make that into reality. And that and that is 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 a true crossover that requires good production manager, good really walk like for my previous set, because the entire Aiden was taking place in downtown Los Angeles, is a chase that I literally just walk to Los Angeles and taking photos with my iPhone for every corner and then just kind of taking measurements from Google Map and just block out this city block that is roughly the same um, dimension to the actual city block. And I will use these iPhone low-res photos of the textures of the of that city block and just map it on uh, geometries. And then I can start placing a cube that starts to travel in like 15 miles per hour or five miles per hour as a person that's running. And that becomes an indication of how much, uh, how much space we're covering in downtown. And later on, that becomes information for which city block we have to shut down and get cops. And but but all of that become very relevant in actually executing the film. I mean, the entire film was ten minutes, and practically, I think I think conventionally, historically, if you shoot that, you know. It takes a few days for you know a TV show. TV show is probably quicker, but like a feature film, sometimes it's like you have a handful of setups a day, right? Mm. <clears throat> for Aiden, just because we didn't have the budget, we there were shots where we just one take and we move on. So the entire film was shot in uh, like a day and a half, wow. and. Uh, it was it was a running gun. I remember Kevin, you know, four o'clock in the morning in downtown. I was like, Kevin, you need to just run faster in this shot. And I didn't realize that he's been running for six hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you're just so focused on that monitor and you're trying to so focus on the on the performance. Uh and that's that's definitely something I have to have to have to learn you know uh you know now it's no longer a previous character that runs at 15 miles per hour it's a human you know like like who needs <laughs> yeah. all of that okay that that probably leads us into a good question you know i was wanting to ask you about i guess you know given the state of the technology landscape it would be good to chat about how new tools like unreal are changing the way that you do previous and you know can you talk about that a little bit sure um unreal is changing the landscape for sure. And the Halon Entertainment, um, which is a previous company, is probably the first company that starts to utilize Unreal Engine for real previous work. They develop a pipeline that, that starts with people working in Maya and able to output things to previous. And a lot of it is for visual fidelity aspect of things because Unreal Engine as a game engine 
and have almost unlimited amount of lights. It has real shadows. Um, is far superior than uh, the Maya OpenGL viewport that can only handle probably sixteen lights, and and they don't. They, they're not. They're not treating those lights to behave in a in a kind of a real world manner. So the Unreal Engine, not just the lights, the cameras have depth of field, a true depth of field that comes in as well. Uh, and you can also have extremely complex scenes. So at first, you know, so I've worked on three feature films that adapted the Unreal pipeline as part of previous. Um, one is like just one single test shot on deep, deep water horizon. Um, and the other one is uh, is one sequence on um, Aquaman. Mm-hmm. The, the final battle, suddenly you have tens of thousands of fish, you know, like that. It just is one of those things that would just bog down Maya hugely. And we were able to work in on, uh, on Unreal Engine to, to perfect that, to make that more efficient. And also uh, just visually, it, it, it looks better. You know, it's got real motion blur. It's, it, it feels more cinematic. And then Call the Wild, which is another film where it was the entire film was kind of, you know, uh, done through the working my outputting previous process. And oftentimes for previous companies, that's kind of a sweet spot because for previous company, their product is previous, Mm. you know, their their demo reel is previous. So the higher that quality can be is always going to look better than, you know, shaded yeah. stuff like hey we just worked on you know marvel or dc films but then look at the you know <laughs> for ugly gray shaded previous yeah i think i think there's an incentive for a previous company to go there to chase that higher visual fidelity because that's the business uh and also it does help when that sequence is plugged into uh kind of a studio screening or test audience screening, suddenly they don't feel like they just kind of get pulled out of the story because visually it just we can't like it just turned ugly really quick. Right. Yeah. Yeah. With the traditional previous look. And but now, you know, in segueing into what's to come is that I've noticed now Unreal Engine is no longer being utilized as a visual fidelity tool is becoming a tool where people are starting to author actual work in previous, uh, the through previous just in Unreal to begin with. So Unreal Engine with uh, the virtual production, with the stuff that they're doing with Mandalorian, you know, all of that, it's now become a collaboration tool for many people, your modeler, your animator, your cinematographer, your director, to be able to be in that unreal environment and try to shoot in real time to really cover the action in real time. So I'm beginning to see this. I'm seeing this change that going that utilize Unreal Engine for for just you know visual fidelity into a collaboration tool in which. You know, this latest project I'm working on at um, Sony Picture Animation, K-pop, K-pop Demon Hunter, 
that's exactly what's 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 happening there. And 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 again, that's a new way of working. Um, but I'm truly excited about the potential of that. Um, yeah. So that's yeah, very cool. Let, let's uh, let's chat about the magician's elephant. Obviously, the the, the new film. Uh, on Netflix, and uh, that would be a really interesting thing. There's a, there's a bunch of things to to discuss there. Um, tell us about how you got involved in that project and and how it came about. And uh, I think you produced it in almost entirely during the pandemic. Is that right? That's right. Uh, Magician's Elephant was. I went in to Netflix for an interview at the kind of their headquarter office. And that was the only time I was, you know, at the office for the entirety of the show, <laughs> literally the week after, you know, the lockdown happened and everyone had to go and pick up machines and bring it home. And so, yeah, I've I never worked on a feature film entirely at home in my sweatpants. <laughs> uh, in some ways, real virtual production in my opinion happened at that moment um when everyone was sent home and they've had to work through you know zoom google meet uh start adopting tools that is that is friendly in having multiple people collaborate on the same canvas all of that um i'm i feel like i'm one of the i I'm kind of on the side that that I've, I feel in terms of productivity in what we do, I, it did not diminish because because we had to work from home. In fact, I do think that virtual production really started at that moment. Suddenly, people are on Zoom, directors, you know, cinematographer, production designer were able to comment on a shot an environment, someone driving a 3D scene, all right there. Uh, everyone's always showing up on time because they don't have to fight traffic, you know? Um, mm. Even if they just, that means that they roll out of bed and they just turn the machine on. I've never really had anyone that was late to any of the meetings. Everyone's present. Um, everyone's able to see, you know, the image exactly as it is on their screen. Whereas traditionally you're in a meeting room, in the conference room, and, you know, it comes down to the person who's driving the machine mm. to, you know, to be able to kind of run it. Uh, to be honest, I felt like there was a lot to gain out of that experience on just for from the collaboration level, you know, in general for the industry. But certainly in terms of team building on the social level, it's not great. You know, I think mm. I've noticed that people who have a, a unit, you know, you have your spouse, you have a family seem to thrive a little bit better. Uh, people who are single, you know, it becomes a very lonely place, you know, when you've had yeah. to home for a very long time. Uh, so, yes, yes. So, they, so there's two sides to that coin, very much so. Um, anyway, so that was the kind of the setup of how how that 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 film took place um but also through it if it, it felt like 
the entire crew had like gone to war together, you know, um, yeah. we had a real bond, you know, through a very strange time, uh, with the pandemic, uh, and they've become some of the most loving, uh, with the leadership of, you know, Julia Pister, the producer and Wendy Rogers, the director, uh, they just really care about how everyone was doing, how everyone felt, you know, working on the film. There were, and there was just so much love. I, 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 I always look back and, and I don't think I, out of all the projects like that, I'm so thankful that that was a project during the pandemic for me personally. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the work itself, uh, I've known Wendy at DreamWorks. Uh, we've worked on this other project before. So it was an easy uh, conversation in terms of how we want to do this project. Wendy has a, has a specific vision. They want to shoot it more like live action, more grounded. It's all human character. If it's very fitting to go there. And she also envisioned uh, building the set of the entire city, Baltese, as like one single set of this town, which was a little bit unprecedented because all the films I've worked on before, you'll have a set for the Opera House, you'll have a set for the bridge, you'll have the set for the King's Palace, you have set for, um, you know, Peter and Belna's apartment. But in this film, you know, her and production designer Max Boas, um, art director Yuri, uh, all just, um, and I think with the modeler Philippe, um, started to craft this town that that is able to kind of serve all the story points. Uh, mm. You know, it was real, real important for Belna to be able to see every corner of that town through the window. So we would, I was throwing the camera throwing little characters, making sure that the archways are, you know, the right size or the fountain is not too small for the elephant or too big for Peter and, and making sure that Velna, like all the story points can be told through the construct of this town. We always joked about how um, you could literally just throw that town in Unreal Engine and just have like a character run in it and be like open world experience open world game yeah and i i felt like you know that was such an advantage when i was watching it um with with that knowledge um that the whole town had been built that way and you know even for location scouting and figuring out you know as as you know he's running through the streets and they're having that chase scene and figuring out how how you would where you would go you know and and you'd be able to i imagine um add different assets or obstacles and uh you know to to different areas um in order to make that sequence work better yeah it was it was ingenious i i thought the approach really set it up well for them when i come in is about shooting the film rather than problem solving yeah a lot of times previous end up having to do both um on that front and and I wanted, you know, we had a small team in LA and our vendors partner studio was Animal Logic in Sydney, Australia, mm -hmm. which, you know, there's a lot, there's a team of Theo artists there led by um, Ned Walker, 
and final layout, you know, by uh, Fabian Muller. And, and it was, it was just a really, really great uh, experience working with Animal Logic. They've had so much experience with different projects and also, you know, Lego movie, the very first one, they did a lot of camera lensing tests to have to have the anamorphic look, you know, on kind of a, you know, with lens breathing, the distortion around corners. So there was a lot of tools that were able to easily adapt onto yeah. a magician elephant for that kind of anamorphic uh, lens look for for the feature. They've always, uh, even going back to the the uh, the Guardians of Gahul, the Owls film that Animal Logic did, which was, you know. The cinematography in that was incredible, um, and it was so beautiful. So many of those shots were incredible. Uh, the lens work in that as well, and so they've obviously they've got a few tricks up their sleeve. Oh, they definitely do. I was very pleased to have that partnership uh, on this film. Uh, it was both creative uh, and also execute very well. Um, yeah, I, I think. Then, so I, I, I couldn't praise more in terms of just the team we had. Uh, the film itself, I just, I was on, I felt honored to help Wendy be the eye of the film. It's her first feature. So the job has always been to do the best you can, you know. Um, and I, and then coming up with a camera language that reflects to, to the film meaningfully. Uh, Magician's Elephant was an ensemble film and it used to be a live action project that pivoted into animated film, you know, yeah. that's, that were about 10 years apart. And so a lot, there's a lot of sensibility that comes from that. It was just even the way it was written. And so it's, it's about carrying that over to do it shooting the way that doesn't feel bombastic that feels grounded uh the tools that we're using were you know the right type of composition for the character dynamics you know like peter and velna they they are in a very kind of a spartan-like restricted space so we tend to shoot it quite flat mm -hmm. with very perspective against the wall that are, that they're at the opposite of the frame more opposing um rather than casual and then you have your um leo and gloria where we're just starting to place camera in more kind of free you know free feeling conversations with more like a shorter camera lenses um more perspective just more casual. And then you have the palace, the king and the countess, where we want to shoot it, kind of instill that formality to their presence, like that very centralized composition. All of the tools that were utilized were, were quite nuanced, but mm. I do think, you know, some of, sometimes it's those nuanced film that are the most challenging. You know, it's, it's actually quite easy to be like, Hey, we have this huge battle with 500, you know, uh, this army of people is going to clash into each other. You just kind of simulate that and just kind of shoot it. And then editing can just go wild with it. But, but yeah, it felt to me that, um, Magician's Elephant was, was a, was a project that, that, that seek that sophistication.
um, yeah, overall, I, I was um, I was very very fortunate to be on it. Yeah, and you know, now that I know that it was originally live action, you can you can kind of see a lot of that in there, and you, you don't see that many animated films that uh, you know just mainly human, you know, human characters. Um, and uh, yeah, it's interesting, really interesting to know that in hindsight. Yeah, I, and the next will be the K-pop Demon Hunter, and and it's a whole you know whole other project that is 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 no longer the turn of the century. It's modern. It's K-pop. It's uh, you know dynamic. Is you know is is a I love the fact that it's just so different because sometimes you need to jump from you know between very different projects otherwise. Otherwise, it's not. It doesn't. It doesn't feel fresh, and and you need that fresh energy to keep going. Yeah, I've spoken to both uh, Aaron Warner and to Christine Belson, and they're both really excited about um, K-pop uh, Demon Hunters. So, looking forward to seeing that one. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Well, Gary, it was just uh, so good to chat to you today about your career, and um, look forward to seeing what you do next. Uh, wish you all the best. I appreciate the time. Likewise, I know you're a filmmaker yourself, and I, I love having conversation with filmmaker. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you'd like to get in touch or to shoot us any feedback, then please email podcast at thecreatorsociety.org. You can find me on the socials. As mentioned at the top, please subscribe, like, or share the podcast if you're enjoying it. Thanks to Rich Dickerson for the music, Mike Rocha for the mix, and our exec producer, Eric Miller. Thanks again. See you next time.